Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 27 through 32 is our text this morning. I've entitled the morning's message, The Wonder of the Word, verse 27. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written, at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll, write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you will say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him and his family and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring on them and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the men of Judah all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll, and he gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. This morning, as we make our way through the Bible, I'd like to divide this message into three separate sections. And as I said earlier, I want to call it the wonder of the word. And that'll be our first section. The second part, what I'd like to do is actually give you two Old Testament examples, um, one prophetic uh, and the other picture. We have the saying for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. Of course, I could pick hundreds, literally, if not thousands, actually it's more than thousands, but I chose two of my favorites, so that'll be part two this morning. And then I'd like to end with this thought, and this is what we see happening here, that our God is a God of a second chance. Uh, Jehoiakim is one of the last three kings that are going to be ruling in Israel uh, before uh, Nebuchadnezzar will come and take Jerusalem, burn the temple. And he's being forewarned by Jeremiah. He doesn't like what he's hearing. And so he takes it and first rips it up with his pen and then throws it into the fireplace. And now the Lord is telling him, uh, Jeremiah, to give him a second chance. Go back, write it again. Tell it to him again. And so those three areas this morning, first the wonder of the word, then two examples from the Old Testament, and then our God really is a God of second chances, but always leaving the ball in our court, uh, giving us the, the free will to choose it or reject it, to love it or burn it. And so this morning, let's begin by just um, looking at this book that you hold in your hand, and do you realize that this is the most valuable possession that you will ever own? you realize that? There's nothing more valuable than what I'm holding up right here. It is priceless, and yet... Um, the fact of the matter is we don't put anywhere near the emphasis 
that we should with this great possession that we have. And um, so I, I just want to begin by just sharing some facts about the wonder of the book that we're reading from this morning. There is one unfolding story in the Bible. The Bible is a unity. It's a one unfolding account from beginning to end, a complete harmony, and it continues. The Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament, and yet the New Testament doesn't make sense without the old. Together, the two testaments give a harmonious account of the dealings of God with humanity without any contradictions. We have a saying, goes something like this, the new in the old contained, the old in the new explained. Just one of those little Christianese things we, we throw around. How often have we read when we're, when we're reading in the New Testament? I think yesterday a men's prayer meeting had happened at least, at least four times where it says this was being done, that which was being fulfilled by. I think it was yesterday we read, Jesus said, I'm going to tell you these things before they happen, so when they happen, then you will actually believe. The Bible is unlike any other religious book. It has over 40 authors who did their writing on three different continents over nearly a 2,000-year period of time. It maintains a perfect consistency of one message. It all points to Christ. As Jesus said, search the scriptures. The volume of the book is all about me. Um, Whose work on the cross was, of course, ordained before the foundation of the world by God, the true author of the Bible, before even the world began. Among all the books that have ever been written, the Bible is absolutely unique. And it's not just one book. It's actually 66 books. And one of the most remarkable qualities is a complete unity of the overall message despite having so many different authors writing over so many uh, centuries, hundreds of controversial subjects uh, with natural explanations fail to account for the supernatural character and origin of the scriptures. And these guys were all so different. You would have scholars, you'd have tax collectors, you would have plain ordinary Joes that were fishermen, and um, then you'd have a guy like, like Paul, who said he was a Jew among the Jews, studied under the, the greatest of teachers. Uh, we have um, Jeremiah, who simply didn't want the job in the first place, or Moses for that matter. And we see these different writers, and um, of, of course, originally in the Hebrew for the Old Testament, and then the Greek. So the original writings first came into the English language, was translated. Of course, the, the first five books were, we call them the five books of Moses, and they would have been the earliest. Maybe Job was the earliest, we're not sure. Uh, the book of Revelation was penned in 96 AD. Uh, It was the last of uh, the books in Scripture that make up what we call the canon of Scripture. But where it first hit um, the translation, 
uh, into English, of course, is uh, William Tyndale. And he, um, in 1525 and 1526, put it in to the English language. Let me just give you a little paragraph on William Tyndale. He was a captain of the Army of the Reformers and was their spiritual leader. Tyndale holds the distinction of being the first man ever to print the New Testament in the English language. Tyndale was a true scholar and a genius, so fluent in eight languages that it was said one would think any one of them was his natural tongue. He is frequently referred to as the architect of the English language, even more so than William Shakespeare. As so many of the phrases Tyndale coined are still used in our language today. Tyndale was a theologian. He was a scholar who translated the Bible into an early form of modern English. Uh, He was the first person to take advantage of Gutenberg's mobile press for the purpose of printing the scriptures into the English language. Now, besides translating the Bible, Tyndall also held and published views which were considered heresy by the Catholic Church and later by the Church of England, which was established by King Henry VIII. His Bible translation also included notes and commentaries promoting different doctrines and views. Tyndale's translation was banned by the authorities. And his reward for being the first man to translate uh, into English from the Hebrew and the Greek, his reward was that he was burned at the stake in 1536 at the instigation of agents of King Henry VIII and the Anglican Church. And here we have this brilliant genius gifted in so many different areas, and um, that's where we actually have and really the King James Version of the Bible is really one of the very first ones, but it all comes back to this guy right here, uh, William Tyndale. Over 3,000 times in some form or another, the Bible's author claimed to be speaking for God with phrases such as the word of the Lord or the word of God. They indicate that they believe their words were divine, that they were speaking um, as they were being um, moved and motivated by the Holy Spirit. The Bible claims to be God's word and absolutely true like its divine author. I'm going to quote Numbers 23, verse 19 here, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And he said, and he will not do, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? This claim forces every human on the planet. They have to make a choice. There is no neutral ground. Um, Will people believe God's word or will they reject it? In uh, Jehoiakim's case this morning in our text, he clearly rejected it. Uh, If we faithfully share the claims of his word, the Holy Spirit uses his word to convict the world of sin and rebellion against the Lord. And you either love it or hate it. And there's people, you know, we read in Romans, some people pretend they're indifferent towards the whole thing. But they know God's, they know God is there, 
But Romans 1 says they take this truth that's there and they suppress it. It's not that they don't know. It's just that they don't like Jeremiah, like what's, not not Jeremiah, Jehoiakim, they don't like what's being said. So they reject it, suppressing the truth, even though it may indeed uh, be true. You know, we sort of have to take the attitude of Job. You know, he didn't know what was going on behind the scenes spiritually. He was just doing his daily thing. He'd get up and pray for the kids and, and um, have his devotions. And he did this every single day. And one day, you know, it was all taken away. All of his wealth, his kids. He had seven uh, sons and three daughters. Lost his health, lost his wealth, lost everything. And his wife's advice was, curse, <laughs> curse God and die. Forget about it. Check out. And Job's answer has to be our answer. And that is, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Bible says in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God falsely. You see, we walk by faith. What does that mean? That means we don't know what's around the corner. You never know what any given week is going to bring. Somebody want to say amen to that? So we walk by faith, trusting God, that all things work together for good. Every once in a while, you want to open up to Romans 8, just check, make sure it's still there. It's still there. And so no matter what the circumstances, when you have that as a foundation, that certainty, and you know, the big debate, well, is all the Bible the word of God or just part of the Bible? And we have our chick. Uh, our, 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 um, <laughs> what do I want to say? We want people want to pick and choose what they want to believe today. The red letter Christians, and uh, they say, well, only the red letters are really inspired. Well, I can absolutely prove to you this morning. Give me half an hour with you, or any person. And if you're taking notes, just get this one down, because if you will just be honest and use common sense. There is no way that man had anything to do with this book. Let me just read this. And before I get into this, let me drop a name of uh, Dr. Ivan Padden, a Russian mathematician who lived before the time of computers, spent 50 years of his life um, proving the scriptures through the science of what we call gametria. In Hebrew, every... Every um, letter, 22 of them, have a numerical value attributed to them. And his work is off the chart. It's totally mind-blowing. But um, just drop his name and you can Google him. His work is out there. But let's just deal with the subject of prophecy. Proof of the Bible beyond any shadow of any doubt that it could only be inspired by the Lord himself. Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes even centuries before they occur. Now catch this. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible. About 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled to the letter with no errors. The remaining 500 or so reach into the future and we we may be seeing them unfold as days go by. We certainly are. Now, 
Since the probability of any one of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance averages less than one in tenth, and that is a conservative estimate, one in ten, just one of them. And since the prophecies are for the most part independent of one another, the odds of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 10 to the 2,000th power. That is one with 2,000 zeros written after it. Now, if you will be honest, if you just use common sense, the mathematical probabilities here is there's absolutely no way man had anything to do in this book. When we talk about taking the sword and use it, gang, prophecy, uh, it'll leave them um, troubled. And just say, all, all I'm asking you to do is, is would you go to Vegas and, and bet against those odds? Not me. <laughs> and so that's just a simple fact that it's unique with the word of God. It's the only book that deals with prophecies. Or you're going to have your Nostradamuses and, and um, Shirley MacLaine's who's out on a broken branch somewhere <laughs> trying to cast it and then there's the horoscopes that you can read. And, uh, or your fortune cookie that you get after your, your Chinese meal. And, uh, you know, sometimes you go, oh, that, that's kind of true. And that's the word that you have to put on it, kind of. <laughs> and the other time, it's totally off the wall. Not with the scriptures. 100% accurate, 100% of the time, over 2,000. Now, just take one, prove it wrong, as Dr. Patton did with his article. He says, okay, I challenge you guys. I've laid it out there. Now, this was late 1800s, early 1900s. And $100,000 was a lot of money back in that time. I says, he says, anybody that can prove me wrong, you get $100,000. Now, I think some people would have tried to take him up on that. But to this day, nobody has ever collected that hundred grand, And they won't, because they can't. The Bible is the word of God. As it declares itself in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, not just some of it, not just the red letters, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You know what that tells me about this book? It tells me how to live life. Good place for an amen. It tells me how to live. It's a guide, as it says in our cover in our pamphlets, a light unto my feet. It shows me what to do. It shows me not what to do, not what not to do. Um, we have this saying, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. And it teaches us. Psalm 138, verse 2, God holds this book that you're holding in your lap this morning above his name. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, you have magnified your word above your own name. In Hebrews 4, It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, things that are almost inseparable, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When Peter preached that first message, it says they were cut to the heart. It cut them deep. 
because there's such power in the scriptures. And this one this morning, this last one from Galatians 3, is going to be our launching plan to go into our second division of our study this morning. Interesting verse in Galatians 3, verse 8. It says, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, catch this, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. I want that just to settle in for a second. It tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, and all the nations shall be blessed. My question is, where did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Would you please turn to Genesis chapter 22? One of my favorite stories in the scriptures. It smacks of John 3.16 right off the very get-go. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, comment on some, and we'll come back for others. And um, let's pick it up in verse 1. This is God offering, telling Abraham to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Didn't we read that in Psalm 11 this morning? The Lord tests the righteous. And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, here I am. And he said, I want you to take now your son, your only son whom you love. All right. Right there, my mind jumps to John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So I make that connection right there. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. That's important. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And what you want to notice here is is, um, no hesitation, no arguing, um, obedience. And I'll say right now that I believe that at this point he already understands the gospel. And he's, he realizes something's being acted out here. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, he split the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Now, this was on the third day he lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Let's just stop there. The picture that we're going to see here is the gospel. Now, when the word came to Abraham, it was a three-day journey, and he was obedient to God's charge. So in Abraham's mind, as far as he's concerned, his son is already dead. So we see the comparison that our Lord Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he literally fulfilled that. But in Abraham's mind, his son has already been offered up. He's not going to not go through with this. And Abraham said to his young men that were traveling with him, he says, you guys stay here with the donkey and the lad. We're going to go up yonder. We're going to worship. And then we'll come back to you. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering. And he laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together in agreement. 
But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, we have the fire and the wood, but, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse eight is one of the, the places. Um, I, everybody knows I'm a New King James man. But I have a big problem with the New King James in verse eight, and here's why. If you have the King James version of the Bible, this is how it reads. My New King James messes it up. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself. In the original, the four isn't there. The King James has it right, where it literally says, my son, God will provide himself for the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, and built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Okay, at this point I'm going to stop. So we stopped in verse 9. Keep your finger there. And I'm going to put something on the screen. I want to show you Mount Moriah today. Um, And what you're looking at is the Temple Mount. And notice that it says it's the lowest point. Now, Rabbi Richmond good friend, head of the Temple Mount Institute in Jerusalem, who's dedicated to the rebuilding of the what we call the Tribulation Temple. And if you would ask him, he is dogmatic that this was the spot that Abraham offered Isaac. To me, it never made any sense because it's only halfway up the mountain. It's the lowest part of the mountain. Now, if you're going to go to a mountain where the... It, It says here, and I will show you the spot. If you go to the highest point of that mountain, I'll show you the next picture, what's at the highest point. That's called Golgotha. It's called Calvary. It is 777 meters above sea level. And before I could find this picture on the internet, I've believed it for years. It didn't make sense. Calvary is the same spot where Jesus was crucified. It's the same place, gang, where Abraham offered up Isaac. He went to the top of the mountain. Now, if you look, you can see the skull. But on, on top of it, that ridge right there is the highest point of Mount Moriah. Obviously, it's an old picture. And um, there's a cemetery up on top today. So if you look at verse 9 again... And remember, it says in verse 2, take him to the mountains of Moriah, and I shall tell you. In other words, he's going to point out the spot. He's going to say, I want it to happen here, Abraham. Because he's, the Heavenly Father is looking down through the corridors of time, knowing that another father is going to go through with what the Lord stops Abraham from doing here. Pick it up in verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there There was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, and so Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now the prophecy, verse 14, one of 2,000. 
Then Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided future tense. Here's the prophecy. And he knew what was going on because the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And somehow, some way, even if he went through with it, as far as Abraham was concerned, it's the resurrection. He'll just resurrect him. But of course, the Lord stopped him. But another heavenly father, um, when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, he says, my hour has come. And what shall I say, Father, take this cup away from me? And he said, Lord, if you will, please remove this cup. But if not, and I'm supposed to drink it, then not my will be done, but your will be done. It had to be done. You know why? Because it's a prophecy. From Genesis 22, verse 14, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And I look at stuff like this and I see Abraham as a type of the father and Isaac, of course, a type of Jesus. And um, the mount of the Lord is there to this day. We'll be visiting it again, um, Golgotha. And I wonder at the marvel of the word of God. All right, let's um, take this and let's turn to Uh, John chapter 14 in the New Testament. Getting ready for setting up our second one here. John chapter 14. Oh, looking at verses 15 through 17. We have um, Jesus talking to the disciples about the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the, the reason that the Holy Spirit will be sent. In verse 15 we read, uh, for I have, um, 14, no matter, it didn't look right, Um, 14 verse 15, if you love me then keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Now the word there is actually translated comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So here Jesus is saying, and matter of fact in chapter 16 verse 17 he says this has to happen. He says, nevertheless I tell you the truth, John 16 verse 7. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper the comforter, the paraclete will not come to you, but if I depart, then I will send him to you. This is a New Testament teaching. It is a New Testament promise that the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, as he says in John 14. I'm going to send someone to come alongside you. He's going to draw you to me. He's going to call you out of the world, and he's going to make you Um, as we are called the bride of Christ. And we're going to be wed someday at the wedding banquet feast uh, to our bridegroom. Good place for an amen. New Testament teaching? Clear enough? All right, let's look at the Old Testament picture. Let's go back to Genesis. This time, chapter 24. 
the wonder of the word. Isaac is of age, marrying age. And we read in, uh, in uh, these verses here, I'll read and stop and comment as we go through, not the whole chapter, but part of it. It says, now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant in his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand on my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from the sons from the daughter of the Canaanites whom I dwell. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to have you turn back to um, chapter 15 of uh, the book of Genesis. So turn back to chapter 15. And here is the most powerful man in Abraham's house who's in charge of all of his possessions, but he's not named. And he's not named for a reason. But in chapter 15, he is named and in verse 1 it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord, I don't have any kids. I'm childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. The translation and the meaning of the word Eliezer is comforter. Go ahead and check it out. So what we have a picture of, turn back to 24. Why is a servant unnamed? When the Holy Spirit was sent, he never, he says his job was not to draw attention to himself, but really to draw attention to the son. So even in the story, his name is not important. He's just a servant with a lot of authority. But a little homework tells us his name happens to be Eliezer, which is equivalent to what Jesus said in John 14, I will send you a comforter. What's he going to do? His whole purpose. It's expedient that I leave. I have to go because if I don't go, I can't send the comforters back. What's his job? To draw a bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture beginning to unfold. Gets better. And then he warns Eliezer, this oldest servant, no wife for the Canaanites. But I want you to go back to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, well, perhaps a woman, maybe she doesn't want to do it, won't be willing to follow me to the land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Notice this. I see the heart of the father here. And Abraham said, I have the son in my Bible, beware that you do not take my son back there. And the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I will give this land. Uh, To your descendants I will give this land. You when, if you're listening, to your descendants I will give you this land. President Obama, if you're listening, to your descendants, I will give this land. I want to hear a good amen at this point. Who's the land belong to? Belongs to God. But he gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And he will send his angel before you and shall take a wife from my sons from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you're released from your oath. Only do not take my son back there. Not now. Right now the Holy Spirit's job is to gather a bride. And uh, someday we'll be reunited. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So he takes off and he goes in verse 10 to his master's hometown of Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he's sort of talking to the Lord. And he says, Lord, please make my journey successful. And I'm going to throw this little fleece out before you so that you can show me which one you want to be Isaac's bride if she's willing. If I come there and I meet a girl, I'm going to ask for some water. Then she's going to give it to me. And then she's going to say, and I'm going to water your camels too. And that's what he sort of throws out before the Lord. So now verse 14. Um, Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher and I may drink. And she says, drink and I will give your camels a drink. And then the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And he wasn't even done with this thought process. And it happened before he had finished speaking that Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. What a coincidence. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. Now if we're a type of this, I just want to make it personal to you this morning, that that's how the Lord sees you. White as snow, a chaste virgin, and to him you're the most beautiful thing he's ever laid his eyes on. You're unique, you're one of a kind, and he's in love with you. And he creates those divine appointments. And she went down to the well and filled the pitcher and came up, and the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And so she said, drink, my Lord. And she hastened and let her pitcher down to the hand and gave him a drink and when he had finished giving him a drink she says you know what I think I'll water your donkeys or your camels too and then she hastened and emptied her pitcher and she drew water for the camels well as far as Eliezer is concerned this is signed sealed and delivered done deal and he's you know he's got to be excited about this so he takes a piece of gold out and he sticks it in her nose you know, 10 years ago, that, that would have not been weird. <laughs> it's commonplace today. But then he takes out two nice pieces of gold and slaps them on her, on her and he says, any chance you got room in your house for me and my, my camels? And she says, of course, come on, we have plenty. And the rest of the story, of course, is, is, the, um, is the negotiating and he explains that he's, from Abraham, who's extremely wealthy, and he wanted to come to a relative's house because he doesn't want his son Isaac to marry anybody except from his lineage. And so they're talking about this, and this was, of course, um, Laban, Uncle Laban, and, and Bethel answered after he got done explaining the whole story. I put this fleece before the Lord. It happened just as I said. And their response to all this is in verse 50. And Laban and Bethel answered and said, well, this thing obviously comes from the Lord. 
We cannot speak either good or bad. They saw the Lord's hand in it. Here's Rebecca, take her and go and uh, let him be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard these words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servants brought out jewelry of silver, of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. When the Holy Spirit was sent into the world, what was one of the things that he did but to give gifts of the Holy Spirit to the bride? Are you tracking? He gives gifts, and here he is giving gifts to others other than Rebecca. But her mother and her brother said, let the young woman stay with us, oh, a few days. Well, that's pretty quick. How about if she could hang just a couple days? How about, say, 10 days? And Eliezer wasn't in favor of that. He said, please send me away to my master. So they called the meeting, and they said, well, we're going to let Rebecca decide for herself. Now, this is important. You see yourself in this picture. The Holy Spirit can come to you. He can draw you. And um, you can hear the word of the Lord, and you can do one or two things with it. Jehoiakim decided to burn it, didn't want anything to do with it. Here, Rebecca is going to hear the word of the Lord, but she has a choice to make. And it's important that, she see, that you see that she can say no, or she can say yes to this marriage invitation. So we read, they called Rebecca, uh, and we'll let her speak for herself, verse 57, verse 58. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they sent Rebecca away, their sisters and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you be the mother of thousands of tens of thousands and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camel and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now put yourself in a story. You've just left your family in what, a day's notice? And you're going to be married to a man you've never seen before? You've only heard that obviously dad's very wealthy. And... uh, Yet, by faith, she exercises this. What do you think it must have been like those days on a camel? We're not just talking a day's journey here. Day after day on that camel, slowly going, hmm, I sure hope he's good looking. (laughs) And just wondering, on the other hand, Isaac, you know, wondering the same thing. And she's pondering these things until she finally gets back to where Abraham is. Let's pick it up. In verse 62, we find that Isaac, who is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, came from the way of Bir Laroi, and he went and dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and he looked, and there they are, they're coming. Now, what's important here is that when the Lord does come for the church, he doesn't come to the planet earth he goes out to meet us and we go up to meet him and that's 1 Thessalonians 4 then we who are alive and shall 
remains shall be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will also be with the, with the Lord. Isaac goes out to meet her, and he stops. She arrives, and she puts the veil on, and she said in verse 64, Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, who's this guy walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it's my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, the divine appointment and how they met. Then Isaac brought her to his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. For every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. And I wonder at the word of God and marvel as we get into, you know, it's a saying, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. You get into these word studies. Eliezer just happens to be the comforter. Perfect picture, perfect type. It just fits together absolutely perfectly. All right, let's go to our final point this morning. God of a second chance. Let's go back to the book of Jer- Jeremiah. In our minds, I'm not. You don't have to turn there. Um, but what we've we have so far is we have Jeremiah, verse thirty six twenty seven, saying, "Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll, write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll." which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. So we have the word of God being rewritten. And um, it's a, a second, really, a second chance. It, it happened before. The first time God's word was given, I'm quoting Exodus 34, verse 1. Moses is coming down the mountain a second time. And I'll read it. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stones like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke. He was upset because the people um, were partying. They had made a golden calf, and, the, and Moses broke the tablets. So we find the word of God again having showing his grace and his mercy. The word once again, and he He's given that second chance. Um, turn with me to, oh, you can make your way to Matthew while you're turning there. I want to talk a little bit about Peter. And this is in my notes because of Ben's prayer yesterday. Uh, men's prayer yesterday, we finished the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, 27, and 28. And part of our reading and why I added it into my notes today as I thought it through, I told the guys what the message was going to be about. They didn't know I was going to bring this in. But he is the God of a second chance because I really believe that Peter checked out from following the Lord. I feel that in his mind's eye, he disqualified himself from being a disciple. 
Now, you know the story that um, Jesus said this night, you guys are all going to betray me, every single one of you. Now, Peter was a man's man. And he said, I can imagine these other guys flaking out on you, Lord, but not me. Not me. I will die for you. And the Lord looked at him and he said, Peter, this night, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you ever knew me three times. And he says, impossible. It's not in me. I would never, ever do that, Lord. Matthew 26, verse 75, when he not only denied him, he builds up, first of all, some guy says, you're a Galilean, I recognize that accent anywhere. It's like being from Wisconsin and saying boat or toast. (laughs) It's a dead giveaway. Well, the Galileans had some sort of accent and they just gave him away. And he just blew it off the first time and said, don't don't know him, leave me alone. But the last time, um, he's really getting upset about this thing. And the Bible says he began to curse and he began to swear. I don't know this man. And he no sooner got the words out of his head, mouth, Matthew 26, verse 75, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus that said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. But I take it a step farther. When you fail in your strong suit, and that would have been Peter's strong suit, his courage. He was the one, you know, who ripped out the sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest. That was Peter. But I believe that Peter felt this is it. I've crossed the line. How could he ever want me back? after what I've just done. And so, John chapter 21 ends this way. Jesus, after the resurrection, after appearing to Cleopas and his friend, they hightailed it back to um, Jerusalem because Jesus appeared to him. And one of the things that they said is, he's risen and he's appeared to Peter one-on-one. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that conversation except that it happened. And there was something going on there that the Lord restored Peter and gave Peter a second chance. Peter, when he first met the Lord, um, they, they were on the shore. Jesus gave a Bible study. And after the Bible study, he said, let's go fishing, guys. And Peter says, Lord, we've been up all night. They're just not biting. He says, but if you want to, we will. They go out. The nets are so big, they begin to break. And they have to call other boats in because there's so many fish. And then they take the fish into shore. The biggest sail (laughs) as a businessman that Peter ever had. And it says, they left all. And Jesus said, you come and follow me because I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. Now, that was three years earlier. At the end of John 21, Jesus tells the disciples, I want you guys to go up to Galilee. I'm going to meet you up there. You just wait. So in verse 3, it said, basically what's happening here, three years has passed. Peter has been restored, but he becomes impatient, waiting for the Lord to show up. Boy, can I identify with this one. 
And here's the danger that we have to look out for. I hear of people going back to the old ways. I hear of people that have been following the Lord, walking with the Lord, waiting for the blessed hope for years. And I find them turning around, going back. To what? I have no idea. But I see it happening. He became impatient, waiting for the Lord to show up. So what does he do? Verse 3 of chapter 21, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. And because he was a leader, they said to him, oh, we're going too. And they went out, immediately got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Hmm, starting to sound familiar. Jesus is standing on the shore. Hey, boys, catching any fish? No. Well, try throwing the net on the other side of the boat. Do you know how dumb that is? <laughs> That's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Of course it is, especially if you're a fisherman. But immediately, the nets were full. And immediately, Peter said, it's the Lord. And he, he hightailed it. In, and of course, they had that meeting one-on-one with Peter. Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Well, tend to the young ones. Take care of them. Third time, Peter's getting it. Uh, do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed the sheep. Just feed the sheep and love on the sheep. And um, then, after that, Peter changes the subject. And he says, you know, the night that you were betrayed, Lord, who was it really? Um, was it John? You know, basically, he looks at John and says, was it him? I don't like John that much. And was he the guy that ratted you out that night? You know, Peter, you want to shake the guy, you know? And basically, the Lord says, what business is that of you? And he says, if he remains till I come, that's why we know it's John. There was a rumor going around that John will be alive. He was the only one who wasn't martyred until the Lord comes. He says, it's none of your business, Peter. You follow me. Now, the reason I quote this verse is I want you to know it's the second time that Jesus had to tell Peter to follow him. Let's make it personal. Maybe this morning you need a second chance. I want you to know that the God we know is the God of a second chance. You want to say amen to that? Gets better. He's the God of the third and the fourth and if necessary, the fifth and the sixth. The point is, that uh, he just wants you to come back to him, come back to his word. And um, he's waiting there like the father, and he will take you in. I had no doubt in my mind that Peter thought it was over, but the Lord sought him out. He had that one-on-one meeting, and he might be seeking you out this morning, and he wants you to know that he loves you. And I, I marvel at his word, and if you're in Matthew chapter 7, We'll close with this this morning. The wonder of the word. And we read in verse 24 of Matthew 7, there's wise people and there are foolish people. He says, verse 24, therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine, what's that? Well, it's the book you hold in your lap, the Bible. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. No, we're told not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. He says, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Oh, the rains will descend, the floods will come, the wind will beat on your house, but it won't fall if you're founded on the rock. That's like Job. Give all this heavy stuff happened to you, 
And you can still have that attitude, naked I came, naked I go. And you stand through the storms. The fool, however, this would be Jehoiakim. He didn't didn't want to hear the word. Not everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like Jehoiakim, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. 2 Timothy 4.2. What are we to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all love, long-suffering and teaching. Not little sermonettes for Christianettes. You know, I actually went online and I wanted to know the length of an average, across-the-board, Sunday morning sermon. Oh, was that revealing? You want me to close with that? A 26 to 30 minute sermon, about 18%. A 31 to 35 minute sermon, 23%. A 36 to 40 minute sermon, 26%. A 41 to 50 minute sermon, 1%. A 51 to 55%, 4%. They don't have a category for me yet. because I just passed the 55 minute mark. The wonder of the word. Unless you dig deep, it's there. It'll satisfy the youngest Christian with the milk, but it'll also, the most mature believer, gang, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. It says for the countless ages to come, he's gonna be revealing to us the mysteries that are in this book. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Jeremiah. Not a wise man. And he did not love your word. We love your word, Lord. And we pray this morning that as we simply teach it, we now entrust your Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of people. Lord, I especially pray for that person that actually has been thinking about going back or that person who feels they've crossed the line and are no longer worthy to walk with you. Lord, would you please reveal to them after the study this morning that you're calling them back to your word, they're calling them back to you, calling them back to service. We thank you for the wonder of the scriptures, just the way that it plays out in stories like Abraham and Isaac and Eliezer seeking out a bride. We see the depth of the work, and then we wonder, Lord, at your word. So please bless it to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.